You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast with Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Rebecca. On today's episode, I chat with Danny Burton about William Caxton, the printing press in England, and the involvement of Edward IV, Margaret of York, and Anthony Woodville. If you love the time period of the Wars of the Roses, you will definitely enjoy this episode because it's going to give you some insight into life during that time period that maybe you've not discovered before. So without further ado, Danny, welcome. Hi, good to see you. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And I know I say that with every single guest that comes on, but I really am excited to talk about today's topic because we're going to be talking about the printing press William Caxton, and some of the involvement of King Edward IV. So, Danny, help us understand how different was life in England prior to the arrival of the printing press? How did people read books and how did they see pamphlets? How did that all work? So, really, it was very much um, if they did see books um, and pamphlets, it was mainly uh, through the church. Um, so a lot of it was probably not in English, unless it was specific rules that everybody needed to know. But really, it was more a case of people who could read telling um, those who couldn't couldn't read, really. So there was a lot of word of mouth going on, is what I'm hearing. Yes, yes, mainly because um, you know the average person wasn't able to read at that point, so it's mainly the really well-educated who could, so they had to pretty much rely on word of mouth as the main way to gain information. So prior to the printing press, how were these things created? Um, So mainly they are created by scribes um, is the main thing, so that is probably somebody employed by a rather noble person or a monarch, or mainly the other way is um, a lot of monasteries um, were very keen to, to do writing and things like that and um, create, they are the main ones who create books as well. Do we have any idea how long it took them to make these reproductions of anything? Yeah, so um, there is quite a varied idea on that, but um, I suppose it could be, you could be spending a whole year on it at least, maybe a bit more depending on what kind of text they were making if it was a, if it was a you know a full book um but probably less than that if it's you know them trying to pass on pamphlets but it's at this point it's more likely to be uh, manuscript copies of books at this point we really take for granted in the 21st century having things online or you know having printers at our disposal all of the time and when i think of the history of printing and i think many of the people listening probably will recognize the name gutenberg as the inventor of the printing press, but that was in Germany. So William Caxton comes into the picture. Can you give us a little bit about his background and then maybe go into what brought him into Europe to learn about this process? Uh, Yes, so actually he was born in England um, and he went on into the merchant business. Um, So he ended up living in Burgundy, specifically in Bruges. So he was actually part of the very large English merchant community out in Bruges. And he actually rose to be uh, one of the representatives of the whole of the the English community there in Bruges. Um, So he kind of would have been, 
you know, it really knowing of the printing culture out in out in Bruges because that was the main place in Europe that actually created books at this time. Um, so we're not a hundred percent sure um, as to the date of um, of when he first became involved in the printing process, um, but we do know he did somehow acquire a printing press of his own and he started printing texts mainly for um, Margaret of Burgundy, um, who was obviously married to Charles the Bold of Burgundy, the Duke of Burgundy. Um, so he, that's how he first became involved with it, is trying to print texts for that, that particular market. What kind of a relationship did Margaret of Burgundy, who, by the way, was the sister of Edward IV, <laughs> what kind yes. of relationship did she have with Caxton? Um, so as far as we know, she's actually pretty much the first patron of of, of him. Um, so she's pretty much the one who's, you know, making sure that everyone knows about, first of all, this, this new invention, the printing press that Caxton is using, but also Caxton's talents for producing these, these new manuscripts as well. Um, and he also would have given her um, actual manuscript copies of his text. So they're, you know, the illuminated manuscript versions with all the pretty pictures in, uh, which we kind of are quite familiar with with the medieval period. Is it true that he printed the first book in English? Um, yes. Yeah, so, well, it's more that he printed the first one that we know was definitely printed in England. Um and dated as well. Uh, so we definitely know that um, that book was the Dixon saying of the philosophers, uh, and he printed that in 1477 after he'd moved to England. So that is the first book that we know he definitely print was definitely printed in England, as it has that you know that biographical information with it. Oh, interesting. Because I had read somewhere online, and I don't know how credible the source was, but it had stated that he printed the first book in English about the history of Troy. It was that way off base. Um yeah, so he did he did actually write that that, you know, print that text. Um so that is one of the early examples. I, I can't specifically say whether or not that's the first example, um, because there may be others that people haven't necessarily written about. Um but that is definitely one of the first ones that he translated into into English, definitely. Was he an apprentice under anyone? Yes, so we think that is probably how he managed to get into into the printing, uh, you know, into the printing culture out, you know, out from the merchant culture. That is probably, I think that's a good assumption to make that that's how he became involved with the print culture. And then we come to Anthony Woodville and some of Edward IV, and this is the part where things get a little bit confusing for me, and I would love it if you could explain. Anthony Woodville, who you are like our resident expert on him on the show, what was his connection to Anth or to William Caxton? How did their relationship form, and what was he able to do for William? Uh, yes, so um, back in 1470, Edward IV had been exiled to Burgundy after a short, brief period of Henry VI regaining the throne. Um, so they were actually living, first of all, in The Hague, and then uh, they went to Bruges. And Anthony Woodville, as brother of Edward IV, went, was one of the party that went out there with him. Um, so the royal party, they actually lived with Louis, the Lord of Grithuse, who actually lived in Bruges. And um, he had the largest library in Europe at this point. 
Um, so we think it's quite possible that um, William Caxton somehow became involved with the royal party there, and that is how the relationship started to form. Um, as we do know that Caxton did move to Westminster, his printing shop did move to Westminster in 1475 or 1476. So it's quite possible that at some point um, there would have been some kind of connection whilst whilst the party was out there in Burgundy. Um, so when Caxton moved over to Westminster, we know that Anthony Woodville became his first English patron. But not just his patron, he actually ended up being his translator as well for at least three texts that we that we definitely know of, which is very unusual because mainly at this time, literary patrons, you know, they're just putting their name to these texts. But um, Anthony Wadville was actually actively seeking texts out to translate from French, Latin um, into English for the first time, or at least if not the first time, the first time with Caxton, at least. Was he invited to come back to England or did he come back on his own? Um, so we, there's a possibility that William Caxton was invited, but um, obviously the point with that is obviously if they did meet in uh, whilst the, the party was in exile in Burgundy, um, they had to wait until Edward once again uh, became king in 1471. Um, so... There is a little bit of a, a crossover there that, you know, um, if he was invited, um, you know, you would have had to have waited for, for Edward to become king again. Um, but there's also the possibility that maybe he just thought, right, I'm go I've made this connection. I'm going to go and, you know, make use of it on my own back. We're not 100% sure which, which one of those. I wonder if once Edward became king again, if he recognised what a benefit... Caxton would be for the monarchy as far as getting propaganda out there or information? Well, quite possibly, because we know um, that Edward IV really was, at this point, he really wanted to replicate Burgundian culture in England. Um, so he pretty much focused on, you know, on this on this um, creation of manuscripts and, you know, and, and book printing culture in general. He wanted, you know, that would have been part of creating this new Camelot, as, as Edward would like to see it, um, by creating, creating a mixture of like chivalric and book culture merged together. Um, so that would have definitely probably been high on, on Edward's list, really, because we know that once he comes back from Burgundy, he's very much, um, you know, he's seen this enormous library that Louis, has, uh, the Lord of Cthulhu, has got, um, and actually, we do have 50 surviving manuscripts that are connected to Edward IV in the Royal Collection. And actually, quite a few of those do mention Louis, the Lord of Cthulhu. So it's quite possible that, um, you know, it's these Burgundian books that have started off his collection. Because pretty much all of them are being, being made in, in Bruges still. So it's very much in bringing back examples, um, you know saying this is what I want to happen in, in England. You know, that's, that's copy Burgundy. I've always heard that Edward IV had a very large library, so it's interesting that you had mentioned um, his time with Louis, Lord 
name I can't pronounce. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, it's, you don't spell it how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting then that, you know, he comes back to England and that seems like that's the point where he really wants to grow his library and get the printing press going. And I'm just staring at this painting, and I think it's a Victorian painting, the one you probably know which one I'm talking about, where it's yeah. Edward the Fourth and um, Elizabeth Woodville and three of their children and William Caxton seeing the first specimen of the printing press. And that image is so amazing to look at. But I wonder, you know, did anything like that really happen? Do we know? Um, not that I've specifically seen mentioned but I would like to think it has because um, we know that really the main reason why Caxton moved to Westminster was because it was next to the royal family pretty much and you know in parliament so it's quite obvious that that's who he's aiming his his business at so there's a possibility and it's just you know perhaps it's, if, it ha- if it did happen it just sadly wasn't recorded. Right. Do we know what the first thing was that he printed in England? Uh, yes, so like I said, it was the, the Dixon saying of the philosophers, uh, which is one of the texts that Anthony Woodville actually translated. Uh, it's um, So it was printed in 1477, and that's basically a moral text um, based on um, a lot of ancient Greek um, philosophers' sayings, things like that. Um, but interestingly enough, um, we know... From Caxton, Caxton was very good at putting very long prologues and epilogues to explain the whole reasons why he's ever done any of these texts. And he says in it that um, Anthony has purposefully got rid of any misogynistic language out of it at all, um, because Socrates was very good at commenting on bad things about women, which Anthony, for whatever reason, um, decided that he didn't want that included in this in his version. But um, Caxton did actually. In a later in a later edition, actually republished the words that Anthony had, had taken out. So that's that in itself is is quite interesting. That that is the first, you know, the first one that's chosen. That it's one that's specifically about creating this chivalric culture of oh, here's some really interesting, um, you know, moral sayings that we ought to abide by. Really, um, which again comes back to the kind of environment that that um, Edward IV is wanting wanting to recreate this kind of, this renaissance idea of merging the chivalric and the scientific, the literature all, to, all in one, really. I can almost imagine how exciting it was for those who were at court when the printing press came to England and suddenly they're having things produced. Is there any contemporary evidence that gives us their feelings? And when I say there, I mean like other nobles, people who were around this. Um, so the main thing that we do have is that obviously prior to this, any manuscript was kind of aimed at pretty much royalty and that was about it. Um, so the only real evidence, not necessarily of their feelings, is the fact that this printing press is actually opening it up to a wider pool of nobility. So that definitely would have been exciting to them because before then the probably only way unless you were quite high up in in the nobility you know within the royal family is that um you know they they'd have only been able to have been gifted them before probably by by the royalty uh, and the monarch um so this will probably be the first time that they've probably seen 
a book or certainly print it in print form anyway um so that would have been i'd like to think that that would have been quite exciting for them to know that you know they're part of this uh, really interesting future for the for printing i can't even imagine what it would have been like to live in a country prior to books being printed or books being you know available how how exciting it must have been for them to think that you know i can purchase this book and we can keep it and we can read it or we can gift it so with that in mind did william caxton make a good amount of money doing this was he a wealthy man or how did this benefit him in the long run um, so we know that actually, um, like I said, Anthony Woodville was his best patron because not only did he, you know, give him the incentive to to make these texts, and obviously, you know, being the you know the brother-in-law of the king, what better patron could he have had at that point? Um, but sadly, after um, Anthony's execution in 1483, he's in quite dire straits really because. Um, you know, his best patron has been executed. And then by, you know, on the orders of Richard III. And um, obviously at that point he wasn't yet king, but, you know, within a few weeks, a few months he was. So Caxton was in this really difficult position of, I've still got to try and continue my business, but I want to still be friends with the Woodville family. But how can I do that now that there's been a regime change? Um, and again, once I mean, he did he did dedicate one of his one of his books to Richard III, but then again, Richard III is only king for two years, so he had quite a lot of difficulty. You know, after the, his first ten years or so in this country, he'd had quite a lot of difficulty of regime changes, meaning that um, did people want to buy his his you know his texts anymore because he was so associated with an old regime that didn't exist anymore. So he did he did struggle very much to find as good a patronage as he found in, in, in Anthony Woodville later on. I mean, we do have examples that the Earl of Arundel, um, Margaret Beaufort and the Earl of Oxford did briefly patronise him, but it was nowhere near as good as what Anthony Woodville had offered him. Do we know, um, besides... Westminster. Was there any other location that William Caxton opened a printing press? Uh, no, he actually did. No, he did just um, stay with with Westminster. But I think um, he, you know, he just thought, well, that was just the main place for his, you know, his audience. Really, um, he just thought, oh, you know, you've got the Westminster Palace, you've got the how, you know, Parliament there. That was kind of the audience that he was aiming at, um, but. Maybe if he'd have thought about other places, maybe that might have helped. But in those days, there was just London and that was it. You know, it's not like how we live now where, you know, if you ha you can easily do that, you know, have more than one than one shop. Um, so I think it would have been difficult for him to try anywhere else at that point. What a difficult life he must have had. Cause it sounds like... He knew who to attach himself to, but then he was also, like so many others during the Wars of the Roses, caught in the middle. Probably just a man who wanted to do this service, but instead got mixed up in politics. Yes, I think he tried his hardest to stay out of it. Um, 
I mean, the most that we know is that he really, really wanted to continue his patronage. Edward IV's son, who would have been Edward V, um, because we see in quite a few of his um, in his texts that he specifically says that he's writing them so that these books can be used for the education of Edward IV's sons. Um, so I think he very much, at that point, obviously nobody knew that that wasn't going to happen, you know, that Edward V wasn't going to become Edward V uh, officially. So I think he very much had hoped um, that that would continue by, you know, becoming friendly with um, Anthony Woodville, who was, you know, in charge of the Prince of Wales education. Uh, so I think he very much in his own time thought he must, it would have been a lot easier for his business to continue. Um, but sadly, obviously, with like many others at that time, uh, fate would have it otherwise. Now, this is probably extremely unlikely, but do any of the original prints that Caxton made still survive? Uh, well, there's a... We definitely know that the manuscript version of the Dixon Sayings of the Philosophers exists um, because that is actually now kept um, at Lambeth uh, at Lambeth Palace. Um, and then there is one that is a possibility might be Caxton's original version called the Winchester Manuscript, which is a um, it's a version of the Mort de Arthur, which was originally written by Thomas Mallory, but um, Caxton did reprint that in in the 1480s, and there's a bit of argument about whether that is or isn't, um, particularly because it's got um, certain pieces missing out of the actual uh, out of the actual text, and it's actually um, the you know the rips and everything have actually been filled with other Caxton texts. So that that's you know interesting to know because people have argued that it is you know, Caxton's version and other people have argued that it's not, it's just that these scraps of paper were whatever was lying around. But um, if it was Caxton's, you know, of course it would make sense that, you know, other other parts of his texts from other other stories and et cetera have been placed onto it really, you know, because they'd have probably had, you know, copies of, of things lying around. Um, but other than that I don't, I'm not 100% sure about actual printed versions um, because it's the manuscript copies that are more likely to have been kept anyway as they were the more expensive versions. I love collecting old printed books. I think the oldest one I have is from, oh, I want to say like 1842. Mm. And would it not be such a prize to be able to find one from the 15th century and add it to your collection? It would Amazing. It would because um I I do have a copy of one of uh, Anthony Woodville's books um the Cordial which was the last one that he translated for Caxton but again it's a Victorian a Victorian copy um so I would honestly like to see you know if there was anything like that available but again it's mainly the the manuscript copies that that survive for for obvious reasons um so I would be very intrigued to know exactly what. A printed version would look like and um, you know if, if it still survives right because if it does it's probably in a museum somewhere or someone's mm. private collection and maybe we just don't know no exactly i'm curious danny you know we're, we're talking about william caxton here for the most part i want to know what is it about him 
that you want people to know that maybe we haven't covered? Um, so really, William Caxton was, he was very much weirdly loyal. Well, it's not weirdly, I suppose. He still wanted to stay loyal to the Woodvilles after after Richard III came to the throne, really. Because um, I think that's part of the reason why he didn't try and pursue um, you know, patronage with, with Richard, um, really. Because, you know, his business went downhill. It's quite obvious that he had a very personal relationship with Anthony Woodville because I can't, you know, I don't think at this time we have very many, if any, examples of a patron being so involved with, um, you know, with the printing system. So I think really it's quite obvious that it wasn't just a business relationship between Anthony Woodville and William Caxton, that it's, you know, that they're, they're, they're doing things together that they both quite enjoy. You know, it's such a good match, really, that both of them were interested in, um, like this allegorical, chivalric, um, heroic, historical type text, really. So I think that's the the relationship that they had has perhaps been lost a little bit in in terms of the whole. Oh, isn't that the fact that William Caxton was using the such brand new technology for his printing? Um, that I think the people behind it has been has been lost a little bit, and I would like I would like to see more if if it was possible, um, more kind of historiography about do we know anything about the people who worked in his workshop, because um, obviously William Caxton he's mainly the peop- the person doing the editing basically in the business side of it, we don't see the people who are actually physically creating the, this text as much. So I think that that would be an interesting thing if, if it could be possible. Now you made me wonder, do we have any idea of how many printing presses he had at his shop? That's the other thing. That his printing shop seems to be so mysterious other than, you know, it was in Westminster. Um, and that we know... It, I think we know where, you know, people know whereabouts in Westminster it was and um, what it was called, but I've not come across an actual description of what it was like on the inside, which I find really quite sad, actually. Do you think he modelled it after what he saw in Europe? Quite possibly, quite possibly, because I think there was some connection to Clone as well with him. So I think he'd obviously seen how it had already started to come about in, in Germany. Quite possibly, you know, if he's if he's already been doing it in 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 Bruges as well, um, he's, he's probably just transplanted what was going off on the continent. Did he make any changes to the press itself that may have been different than what he experienced before? Is there any evidence? Uh, no, not not as far as I know. It was a case of um, it was just a case of trying to tailor the text to uh, an English audience and. The fact it was published in in in, um, in English, which was very unusual at that time, um, as most texts, if they were in in the vernacular, it was usually French, um, usually, um, or well, other than Latin. So I suppose that was mainly the only thing that he did change really was trying to tailor it more to English audiences. We know that when it came to manuscripts and even letters back then, that a lot of it was done. Let's 
make it the most simple we can on some type of animal skin. When the printing press came about, were they still printing it on the same type of paper or what were they using? Uh, yes, yeah, so there is there is a little bit of that because um, I don't think they've 100 percent, you know, gone towards the paper that we know today. Um, as it was obviously a lot more difficult to make them than how they they make it now. So I, I there is still there is still a crossover in that, really, but it's still not 100 percent a book as we understand it. So there is still, you know, the animal skin type type thing really. You really started an industry in England, didn't you? Yes, yes, because, I mean, it's such a big thing by, by I mean, pretty much by the English Civil War. You know, Tudor times, English Civil War, you know, that's when you see the increase of, you know, pamphlets and all sorts of printed material that eventually, well, pretty much become newspapers, which is the main way that people got their news by that point. So he's really, you know, he's the start of that kind of industry in England. And it's interesting to note, too, you know, you mentioned the newspaper. That makes me think about how for centuries and centuries following the invention of the printing press that we still had printed documents. Um, and, And maybe so going back to the point of how they were created by Caxton, the way that he was able to put each letter together to form it. It stayed like that for quite some time, didn't it, before it became a bigger process? Yes, it was pretty much like that up until the Industrial Revolution when machinery was, you know, better machinery was invented. So that's quite long. That's what, uh, about four or five hundred years that that stayed that way. So. You know, that's that is pretty good going, really. That you know, it was Caxton that invented, you know, well, didn't invent, but brought it to this this country, and that it didn't change for so long. It's quite quite amazing, really. If there's anybody listening who is even more intrigued with William Caxton and maybe the printing press, do you have any recommendations on reading material for him? Yes, so um, I would definitely recommend Lottie Hellinger so she's written quite a few things on on, on um, William Caxton so he's, she's done a lot of it of about his background and how he came into printing as well as quite a, a good focus on on the relationship that he has with, with his patrons as well so she would be I think she would definitely be a very good start for anybody and Danny, why don't you tell everybody about your website? Where can they find it? And what will they be able to see when they get there? Yes, so I run a blog that's called um, Voyager of History. Um, so if you just type in voyagerofhistory.wordpress.com, uh, you should be able to find it. And there is a lot of Anthony Woodville-related things, but pretty much anything and everything history-related on there as well. You really have a wide breadth of knowledge when it comes to history because I pulled up the website this morning and I saw something about Jane Austen on there and something about Sitting Bull on there and I thought what a great collection of history Danny has so if you're interested in in not just medieval history but history as a whole I definitely recommend that you check out Danny's website and I will include the link to that in the show notes and Danny you're also available to find on Twitter Yes, yep. Um, just find the, the handle Princess Burton and uh, you should be able to find me. Wonderful. Is there anywhere else people should look for you? Well, um, I do have uh, coming up, I have a biography of Anthony Woodville coming up in 2023. Um, so keep a lookout for that. 
very excited about that, too, because I think he is not spoken about enough. So I look forward to your book coming out in a couple of years. Yes, thank you. I, I totally agree. That's that's what uh, drove me to, to research him. Uh, I think he's uh, very much turned into a background figure of the Wars of the Roses, which hopefully um, this podcast has gone half of the way to explain that he was definitely not a background figure. Wonderful. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to our newest patrons, Karen H. and Debbie B. If you love the show and would feel so inclined to show your support as a patron, I would be ever so grateful to you. For details, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click become a patron for options. Also, the holidays are near and now is the time to visit my merchandise shop. Go to TudorsDynasty.com and click shop in the menu. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 